The first book of Torah, Genesis, is jam-packed with rich family narratives. And something that's quickly becoming abundantly clear is that it's very, very dramatic. These characters, the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Jewish faith, are very complicated and often highly problematic. And it's been really fun to take a look at them from an adult perspective and give myself the permission to say, what would I do differently? Parshat Toldot, the sixth Parsha of Torah and this week's subject, is all about brotherly dynamics. And so to help us take a look under the hood, Rabbi Adam and I have invited our brothers onto the show. Surely, before the season is over, you'll have met both of our extended families. You're welcome. We're going to build off of last week and continue to trace how not only trauma, but more specifically learned behavior is passed down from generation to generation, and what we can do to break unhealthy patterns that are so easily repeated. Unlearning can be a really tricky business. And that got me thinking. Thanksgiving is a few days away, and America has so much unlearning to do around our relationship with our indigenous cultures. If you grew up anything like me, you learned about how Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but not about the 200,000 Arawaks that he slaughtered upon arriving. You learned about how Native Americans were a people in history books, rather than our neighbors. Heck, I grew up on Pine Ridge Road and never knew anything about the Pine Ridge Reservation, let alone that it is home to the poorest counties and the lowest life expectancy in the country. American students have been taught a dangerous narrative that erases the genocide of our indigenous communities, and as one of our guests, Zach Greenwald, will talk about, the most powerful way to reckon with trauma is through education, which, if it's to be effective, requires that we lead by example. We're not going to talk about Thanksgiving in this episode, but it is a holiday steeped in cultural appropriation, slavery, biological warfare, and genocide, and with COVID-19's health and economic effects disproportionately affecting America's indigenous peoples, I challenge all of us to take a deeper look at how we may be responsible in perpetuating unjust and immoral narratives in our lives. Acknowledging our history and the way it lives on by shaking your head in agreement simply isn't enough. We have to talk about it if we're to ever reckon with it. Okay. Thanks for being here. On to the show. You've heard of the Blues Brothers, you've heard of the Smothers Brothers, but now we bring you the Study Brothers. I'm very excited to welcome my brother Nadav and Rabbi Adam's brother Zach to the show. Welcome, guys. Good to be here. Hi. Thanks for being here. This Parsha is all about family dynamics. So to give our listeners a little context, Nadav and Zach, could you tell us what you're working on these days and as broad or as personal as you'd like to get? Perhaps what your current spiritual practice, if any, entails. Maybe, Nadav, you can go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my background is um, in building tech startups. Spent a while building a fleet management company that General Motors ended up acquiring and more recently started a nonprofit called Project N95. 
that helps healthcare systems get access to PPE. Um, as far as um, Judaism, you know, spend holidays with the family, do Shabbat dinner with friends. Uh, that's um, that, that's my strongest connection. Uh, hi, I'm Zach. I'm Adam's little brother. Um, what am I doing now? Right now, I live in a commune in Akko, in the north of Israel. Uh, and I'm involved in a couple different uh, education and activist projects uh, in and around the city with different populations. And um, I'm uh, in the middle of starting, and not in the middle, getting, getting going with uh, creating like a community bicycle co-op um, for the diverse population of Akko to work, work together, build bikes, fix bikes, ride bikes. Um, and meet each other through that. Um, and that is also a little bit my spiritual practice. When I'm working either with the community or by myself, I kind of get lost in the work and I everything kind of else goes quiet and I get a real refreshing feeling from that. So it sounds like on one side of the table, we've got tech and on the other, a commune in Israel. Um, so glad you both are here. Let's dive in. Rabbi Adam, could you give us one of your world-famous summaries for this week's Parsha? Sure, and uh, so glad to have my brother here um, and uh, get the chance to meet Nadav. We're, uh, we are, as Raviv, you said, talking all about family and particularly about siblings and brothers in Parsha Toldot, um, which means the generations. Toldot starts with the story of Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah. Rebecca's uh, difficult pregnancy with twins. There is a repeating theme in Genesis of couples that desperately want to have children and then either struggle to get pregnant. And when they do, it's not uh, it's not so easy and it doesn't go so well. So Rebecca, who has longed uh, to be pregnant, now finally is, but she is really suffering with this very difficult pregnancy, gives birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob, then proceeds to, uh, again, replicate a very problematic dynamic that happened in a previous generation that will then be replicated in a future generation, which is a pitting of siblings against one another. Ishmael and Isaac. Later on, it will be Jacob's sons against Joseph. And here, Rebecca and Isaac pick up favorites, um, with Isaac favoring his um, more traditionally manly son Esau, who's the hunter out in the field, and Rebecca uh, favoring the more gentle and tent-bound Jacob. They have this dynamic where only one child can receive the firstborn blessing, the right of primogenitor that gives them the majority of their family property. But because they're twins, it's not clear who that's going to go to. Esau actually comes out into the world first, and he's his father's favorite. So it's Isaac's intention to give the blessing to Esau. But Rebecca hatches this plot to dress up Jacob like Esau, Isaac at this point, has already lost most of his vision, and so she's covering him in animal hides to make him hairy and rough and to smell like the fields. And Jacob goes to his nearly blind father, Isaac, and deceives him out of the firstborn blessing. Um, And when Esau finds out about this, he comes 
to his father and, and says really one of what I think is the most pathos-filled lines in the whole Torah, like, bless me also, dad. Do, do you only have one blessing to give? And this theme of love as zero sum, as no, I only have one blessing and it went to one sibling and therefore you are going to be turned out with next to nothing, is this repetitive and really troubling theme that finds expression in this Parsha and will continue, uh, frankly, to haunt us through the rest of the book of Genesis. So the chance to talk with uh, our brothers about family dynamics and the family dynamics in the Torah that are deeply messed up and some better models for siblinghood and brotherhood, I think gives us uh, gives us a lot of material to dive into with this Parsha. Hmm. So, you know, Nadav and I had a conversation concerning this text in which, Nadav, you pointed out how there is, from the beginning, such a focus on Jacob and Esau's differences. You know, from the get-go, while they're still in the womb, we hear about how different these two are. Uh, and there's very little, if anything, about their similarities. And that really resonated for me. But I'm curious, Nadav, why do you think that aspect of the text struck you and, and you mind sharing what your thoughts were there yeah totally so the first thing that kind of struck me was kind of wondering how did this upbringing go so costly wrong that uh, rabbi adam was referring to where the general goal of parents is to kind of bring a family together that gets along uh, these these characters were adversaries from the start they went on to want to kill each other you know not only like ultimately they created these like generations of enemies um, so as far as siblings rivalry goes, that, that's pretty bad. Um, and so this is sort of what made me wonder about the, the focus on their differences, right? The whole Parsha, this constantly, this fierce focus on what made them different, whether it's, you know, being manly, having different skin colors, being more hairy or, or anything else. Um, so perhaps it's like parental focus on the, the total separateness from a young age, um, or, or as you mentioned, Rabbi Adam, the, this like zero-sum game, um, maybe this was a big cause of tension, where I, I think it stands to reason that empathy and connection are often driven by the realization that despite our differences, uh, our skin colors, our hobbies, we're not so different um, after all, you and I. Hmm. So so maybe to put another way, you know, for Esau or Jacob or anyone else to be able to celebrate their differences as humans maybe the first step was was really should have been for them to be able to celebrate what makes them the same in order to get along you have to find common ground first and and then discuss differences where is there rob adam are there any discussions here about similarities they're depicted as coming out of the womb um with esau making his way out and jacob literally grabbing at esau's heel yaakov uh, jacob's hebrew name literally means the heel um, so that the, the depiction is of a struggle which has taken place in the womb of like the two brothers clawing for who's going to get out first. And, uh, and then this, this ongoing tension throughout their lives, we will get a reconciliation scene, spoiler alert. Um, so, but it'll be several parshas from now, um, through their early life. It's, it seems that they come into the world as mortal enemies, but um, I'm really resonating, Nadab, with what you're saying, which is that's probably not naturally true. Like, th 
they don't have to be enemies. Um, they they ought to come into the world as siblings who have rivalry, as all siblings do, but as part of a family system that's meant to help to heighten love rather than heighten tension. And instead, what they wind up in is a massively dysfunctional family that continues to pit them one against the other. It's like they really never had a chance. Nadav and I are very different, and uh, our listeners in Europe, Adam, have met uh, our other sibling, Ortal. We're all very different people who came up in the same household uh, under the same roof, but we get along great because we are not constantly told how different we are and we're not pitted against each other, where the narrative in this partial seems like we're. that's really what the writer's focus is on um, and what our focus as a reader is supposed to focus on. I'm curious for you and Zach, how are differences treated in your household growing up? I mean, um, yeah, I'm wondering if the text hit you in any kind of personal way. What do you think, bro? I, I think... I don't relate to this story at all because I think at the center of their tension was this sort of competition and comparison that started in the womb and continued from examples from their parents favoring one over the other and uh, appreciating their skill set, one being a hunter, the other being a gatherer um, differently and, and always one being compared to the other. And I think that from the top down, from parents to children, that that set a bad tone. I guess they had some natural inclination because they were fighting in the womb. But as soon as they came out, that just continued and deepened. And they had this um, this dynamic of always in comparison. And whenever there's a stronger, it means there's a weaker. Whenever there's a favored, it means there's a less favored. And it just creates a really toxic dynamic when you're always in the shadow of somebody else or... I don't know, trying to fight for your way and not just getting the love that you deserve because you're a person and you have a mom and a dad and your sibling is your friend, not your enemy. And I felt growing up one of the biggest, nicest, uh, I don't know, dynamics was that I never felt in competition or in comparison. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you agree, Adam, but I think we were close enough in age to be friends, but distant enough uh, were a difference of four years that we weren't on each other's toes. We were friendly because we were close, but we had different lives and different circles and um, different interests. And we were never like in the same class or on the same sports team or in the same too close proximity. Um, And we each had our own vibe um, a lot from the get-go. And I think uh, to our parents' credit, we weren't, I never was told be more like your brother. And I don't think Adam, you were ever told be more like your brother. I think it let us be who we wanted to be. And I think we both became who we are, which is ultimately better than being who we are in comparison to somebody else. So, you know, parents uh, set the tone of the house. And I I definitely felt like the tone of the house was like, all are welcome. You do your best. You be you. Um, You know, you help each other out. You don't hurt each other. Yeah, and I I think there were ways in which we were set up for success in that. I think that actually connects up a little bit with with mom's experience of being only one year younger than her brother um, and describing every year in school following him. Like whatever teacher had just survived our Uncle Jesse, um, then on the first day was introduced to our mom. It's like, oh, you're Jesse's sister. 
and there was already a preconceived notion about who she is. Um, we, after elementary school, never went to the same school. Like I went to one middle school, you went to another middle school, I went to one high school, you went to a different high school. And I think that that was intentional on our parents' part to like give us um, two spaces where it wasn't you following me, but it was you making your own way. Yeah, I wonder if that was like on purpose or just a lucky accident. I don't know. Uh, uh, we'd have to ask. We'll bring your parents on uh, for for the next one. Get get to the well, bottom. We've already we've already reserved a space for Bubby. Yes, that's like true. that has to happen at some point. Oh oh boy. Um, Zach, <laughs> yeah, uh, get ready. Um, you know, you you've been an educator and a really really good one who I admire um, for a long long time. You know, you are managing group dynamics amongst kids that aren't so dissimilar to these kind of sibling dynamics where some might emerge as the stronger ones or the ones who are easier to like. Um, I think every teacher, if they're being honest, acknowledges that there are some students that are just like easier to like and other students that you have to work at it more. Do you relate to this from the other side, not as a a parent, but as a, a teacher working with youth? I don't know why exactly, but I'm always kind of attracted to the weird ones. Um, I have an idea. <laughs> the ones that like uh, aren't popular or funny or um, good looking or immediately likable. I don't know where that came from, but it's been true for a long time. It's uh, more interesting to 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 struggle to connect with someone than for it to just come naturally. It's not easier, but it's more interesting. I don't know. I think every kid just wants to be seen for who they are. And every kid wants to find something about them to, to be seen by someone else that they're like unique in the world and that they have something to offer. And it might not be the fanciest or the flashiest or the funniest or the, I don't know, smartest, but they have something and everyone's got something. And so if you, if you take the time and you dig a little deeper, then you find that, uh, I don't know, the, the, the kids who have to struggle to be seen actually tend to have more interesting things to say than the ones who get overly uh, too much attention and too much praise and it's too easy. And if you dig deeper into the, into the, the harder stories, the communities that I work with is mostly like a youth at risk or lower income, broken homes, you could say history of violence or drug abuse or either they themselves are in their proximity, you know, seeing like a tough world. That's the, that's the, the general population of youth that I've been working with for the last uh, little close to, close to eight years. Um, and it's interesting. I don't really know what to say besides it's, uh, it's worth the effort because a kid wants to be heard. And if you can be the one to listen, then they'll actually, they'll, they'll open up quite a bit more than you expect. And I, I can't help notice that you, you know, kept talking about uh, our need to be seen and this theme in this Parsha of blindness of the father who loses his sight over the course of his life to the point where in the climactic scene, he can't distinguish one son from another. Like it's it's almost that sort of metaphorical blindness that he lived with when his kids were coming up, his inability to see both of them in the way that you're describing that you see the youth that you work with winds up actually being concretized in his own loss of sight. And in this 
way that ultimately leads to him being being deceived. I have a question real fast. When he asked that question, do you not have another blessing for me? What was the answer? When Esau says, "Can you do you not have another blessing? Yeah, the dad, the, the father, Isaac gave uh, his one blessing. And then the other son was like, okay, so am I like nothing now? And, and what happened then? Basically, yeah, right? Isaac has given away his one blessing that he feels he has to give. When Esau says, you know, give me some uh, some blessing myself, Isaac says, you shall live by your sword and you shall serve your brother. Like it's 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 a blessing that that's almost a curse, if we're being really honest. It's a it's a backhanded sloppy seconds blessing. Yeah, the the I, I just I just pulled it up. The words are, see your abode shall enjoy the fat of the earth and the dew of heaven above. That sounds nice. Yet by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restive, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So you'll have enough to eat, but you're always going to be plagued by violence. You're going to be in second place serving your brother. And the best you can hope for is that there will be more conflict that you'll rise up and try to break that yoke from off of your neck. Like that's, that's not a particularly nice prediction of how Esau is going to spend his life. It's funny because growing up, I feel like I thought of the Torah or these stories as, as lessons to how to live. And there's been a few times now where we've unpacked these stories and they it kind of goes back to the guardrail conversation that we had a few episodes ago. Of, this is exactly what you're not supposed to do. And I'm wondering, are these lessons to show that if all you do is pit your children against each other, um, there's also the theme of not only pitting them against each other with their differences, but that they are both fighting for the same birthright, which is just a blessing that their father made up, that what you get from that is warring nations. Uh, Is this possibly a lesson in how not to parent? Yeah, this is definitely a lesson in how not to parent. And at least to the Torah's credit, bad behavior doesn't get rewarded here, Mm. right? Like Abraham is a really bad father to Isaac and Ishmael and winds up dying estranged from his children who come together to bury him, like we talked about last week. Isaac and Rebecca are really bad parents to Jacob and Esau. And they wind up in a, in a situation of breaking their own home where Jacob is going to have to flee away. Rebecca has crafted all of these plots to have Jacob be the one who inherits, but instead winds up losing her son in the process. Jacob is then going to pit his sons against each other, and that's going to lead to his favorite winding up being sold into slavery. And Jacob is going to think that, that Joseph is dead for years and years so it's not like they pick favorites and then they get what they want. They pick favorites and over and over again, it comes back to bite them. So at least the Torah is making really clear, like, don't be like these people hmm. unless you want your fate to wind up like theirs. Yeah, and it's interesting. Not only are they choosing favorites, but sort of like antithetical to how we all talked about our upbringing they sort of created this like one standard definition of achievement, which was this birthright, right? You have, you, they both want this birthright. That's what excellence means to both of them. And only one of them can get it. 
Uh, so you're inevitably setting up, setting them up for competition, inevitably setting up to have to go out at each other where they, they both see that kind of as the, the ultimate gold standard. And Zachary, I think it's interesting that you're in education too, because it's like, well, how, how do we not only learn from that from a, you know, for, from being a good parent, but from an educational standpoint, like how do we create better rubrics and standards that are maybe not the same for an entire class or an entire group of people, but how can you make each child the best they can be? And even if that means like different rubrics and different testing and things like that. Our mom was a teacher for a long time and I think standardized testing was one of the banes of her existence. Um, the idea that all children were held to the same, yeah, rubric was was so frustrating because not all kids are the same. It kind of it, it's kind of like, duh, but it's also so ingrained in the society that uh, I think it it makes kids grow up very competitive, and when you feel competitive, you feel sometimes better and oftentimes worse than others and it, it, it doesn't bring out the best sometimes it can it can create progress and whatever but it can also just make someone feel small and no one deserves to feel small yeah i mean a lot of the education systems are totally a zero-sum game right if you're graded on a curve um then this automatically means your achievements are directly relative to you know the people around you so you're not you're not necessarily motivated to and you're, you're, the, the system isn't in, isn't put in place to incentivize people to bring bring up people around you and like kind of um, do good things together which you can talk about on a local level with siblings and you can talk about that on a global level I mean that's the difference between nationalism and globalism right uh, either we're all all trying to achieve the exact same thing and spread it everywhere or we're all going to bring our best and live kind of kibbutz style. Zach, can you talk a little bit about that? Like it, it, you're on, a, on an actual kibbutz? It's an urban kibbutz. It's a kind of the new new phase of the kibbutz movement that's based a lot on the shared, the shared spirit of collective energy, collective uh, effort, collective uh, desire to make change. Um, but instead of in the agricultural and building uh, fields in which the early state of Israel needed to meet the needs of the new state, the needs of the current state are to work in, uh, in education and in activism and in lifting up uh, impoverished communities and uh, invisible people to give uh, space and dignity for other people. So it's, it's become a much more educational movement mm-hmm. and it's become much more urbanized in terms of being directly connected to education systems, formally, informally, um, in and around the country, uh, all over. Very cool. But it still has in its essence sort of a... Uh, a deep sense of egalitarianism and uh, social activism and asking the questions of what does the country need? What do the people need? And trying to answer the questions. Hmm. There's another take that I'm curious, Rabbi Adam. When Jacob is pretending to be Esav to receive Isaac's blessing, Isaac feels Jacob and says, the voice is the voice of Jacob, yet the hands are the hands of Aesop. Isaac seems to has a cer- ha- have a certain amount of skepticism regarding who is who, if not actual knowledge of who is standing before him, uh, yet he makes his blessing anyway. Is there any take on the idea that Jacob knew what he was doing, but went along with it anyway? Yeah, and some of the commentators will say that, that Isaac um, 
ultimately recognizes that Jacob is the more worthy uh, sibling to carry the family covenant forward. And while he needs to he needs to sort of go along with the ruse because these are the ingrained patterns in the family. Um, ultimately, on a deeper level, he knows what he's doing. I, I think that that's possible, but I don't necessarily think that that's congruous with the overall way in which this family has been set up and in which they live their lives. They are a family which have set up their boys to fail from the beginning. Even if Isaac is going along with with this scheme, it, it doesn't make him less complicit in some ways. It just amplifies the way in which they can't be honest and direct with one another in a way that would lead to a healthier dynamic together. I, I do want to have like a moment of sympathy for Isaac because he's a traumatized kid, right? Isaac is the one whose father brought him up on a mountaintop and almost killed him. So he doesn't exactly have the best role models for how to do this job. But I, I think it's difficult to exonerate either of the parents in this story. I think that that their selfishness and their lack of transparency ultimately contributes to yet another generation of um, trauma and estrangement. And uh, and that runs contrary, just as you were saying at the very beginning, um, or Nadab was saying, like that runs contrary to the basic mission of what parents are supposed to do in a family. Yeah, we seem to be tracking a lot of uh, a lot of generational trauma in a very short amount of time. Or a long amount of time, Torah time, but in our reading of it, week to week, it's just passing yet another horrible thing on to the next generation. Well, it, I had a, I remember having an interesting conversation with mom where I don't know how old I was, but I guess I was old enough to be talking about this, but young enough to not really understand about when parents abuse their children, um, like physically, that my thought process was, well, of course, if someone hit me, my my parents didn't hit me or Adam. Maybe they hit you. I don't know, but they didn't hit me. And uh, as, uh, if I know that that happens and I know that it hurts, then for sure I will never make someone feel that way again. If if someone did trauma to me and I know how bad that feels, I know how scared I was, I know how out of control that was, of, that's the, the biggest reason to never do that because you don't want to pass on that trauma. But the conversation with my mom, who's a social worker, you know, she said one of the unfortunate truths is that often trauma breeds trauma or abuse breeds abuse. And it takes a certain special someone or something to break that cycle. But unfortunately, statistically, the natural cycle of abuse is that it leads to more abuse. And those who are abused become abusers and those who are neglected neglect. And to me, it seems so the opposite of what should be, that you want to break that, you want to rise above it. It happened to me. I know how bad that felt. Be damned if I'll bring more of that into the world. But I think one of the sad things that I remember talking about is that uh, it's not true and that there's a, there's a cycle of violence that continues from generation to generation and passed from you know, fathers to sons. And um, I don't know. That bums me out. I know that as I get older, I'm more and more aware of the fact that I am the product of my parents as I get closer to the age that or I'm already past the age now that my parents were when they had me realizing that I will probably parent almost 
identically to them um, just because it's what I know. I only know what was handed down to me. Because you're in the educational space, do you, you seem to be doing work around breaking those patterns. Um, you're working with, with, you said, kids from broken homes, um, from abuse, from violence. What does that work look like in trying to break the pattern of generational trauma? To be a different kind of male, to be, uh, you know, six foot tall and 180 pounds and not hit and not yell and not stink of alcohol and not, and show up and be present. And when a kid is talking to me to lean down and be at their eye level and to, you know, I think that's a big difference, uh, or a big effort to, to try and break the cycle is to give a different kind of example. You know, I'm not their dad, I'm not their mom, but I can be a male in their life that doesn't act like their mom or their dad and give them at least some example of something else to, at least to compare and then to choose. Because uh, you're right, if you don't have anything to to compare against and you just, it is what you know, then it's what you do. And and that's unfortunate because there's lots of options out there. It's just as easy to to hurt as it is to, to care for. Um, but you have to choose to care for <laughs> And and it costs, you know, it's much easier to build and than, uh, sorry, it's much easier to destroy than to build. And so uh, if you want to make the effort, then you can you can be in a community building space in a loving space. But if you want to take the easy way out, it's much easier to be violent and it's it's quicker, it's cheaper, the effects are faster. Um, and if you want to care for someone and love somebody, that's a slow game that takes a long, long time. And it, and it means like standing as like a certain like uh, junction and saying like choose this or choose that, and you hope that the kid chooses. You don't know. There's a poster uh, on my mom's and dad's desk uh, work desk that I think someone gave my mom with a quote that said, uh, "We cannot direct the wind, but we can only adjust the sails." Meaning, you can't make it happen, but you can adjust. You can try. You can just inch one to the left or one to the right and hope that you, you find safe harbor. And I really like that uh, little poster. And I think that it's like a good model for also for parenting because you can't, your kid's your kid, they're kind of their own person from the get-go. But you can adjust and you can adjust towards violence and competition and alienation and loneliness and you can adjust towards community and patience and sympathy and empathy. And uh, it's a choice that parents make. Well. We've been talking a lot about parents and their responsibility, and I think that all of that is true. And there's also um, a truth that, uh, as Zach was just saying, like people are who they are oftentimes from as soon as they emerge into the world. And some of us are programmed more competitive, and some of us are programmed in a more egalitarian, live and let live kind of way. I, I remember, I mean, Zach, you have been the person who you are your entire life. Um, at least as far back as I can remember, we we have a cousin who I dearly love, who is super competitive, and he's uh, he's only about a month different from you. Um, and I remember that he used to like come up to you and challenge you to a race. I can run faster than you, and then he would take off running, and you would just kind of stand there and be like, "All right, you can run faster. Maybe you can't, but I don't really need to get out of breath to prove it." Like that's that's just been who you are, and I think there is a way in which. We could have competed. I think that I have a bit more of a competitive streak in me. And I think it's to your credit and maybe also to the credit of your genetics and neurobiology 
that you don't really get into that game. And I, I'm wondering, Nadav, like, what do you attribute the fact that beyond what sounds like, you know, really good parents, do you, do you have anything that you attribute your positive sibling dynamic to? I mean, one thing, and it may, maybe, like you said, it's, it's partly due to parenting. And I, one thing I wonder, though, is if we were both, you know, went into the same field, would it be different, right? We happen to like different things. We went to, you know, acting versus tech, and we went to a completely different field. And, and I think we were encouraged to do so, encouraged to do uh, the things that we got excited about. That's ultimately contributed to the, the positive dynamic, too, is that we're both able to live our lives in a way that's not directly competing. I talk a lot in um, when I teach about Jewish history about uh, the fact that polytheistic cultures were almost always more tolerant of Jews than monotheistic cultures, because polytheistic cultures allow for the possibility of many different truths. There's always room for one more God on Olympus. But if you believe that there is only one, and you believe that there's only one, then one of us needs to be wrong. And, and we tend, when we talk about sort of the sweep of the development of ideas, to see polytheism as primitive and monotheism as more advanced, when in fact polytheism is less prone to violent suppression of difference than monotheism is. And and there's a there's a parallel here. Like if there's only one way of being successful, if there's only one goal in the family, then naturally one person is going to succeed more than the other. But if there's the possibility of multiple different versions of success or multiple different truths about how to live a life, then uh, then then there's the opportunity for everybody to thrive on their own terms. So I think I'm a rabbi who just made an argument for polytheism, so I probably need to go excommunicate myself. <laughs> um, but there is uh, there is something there about trying to get out of these zero-sum situations that we put ourselves into and, God forbid, we put our children into um, that just winds up perpetuating the same kind of strife. Before we close out this week, this show is about engaging with a text, and we want to make sure that it's not a one-way street, that you as a listener have a way to engage as well. We are in the process of partnering with some very cool organizations, but in the meantime, I wanted to open some lines of communication. Nadav has very generously offered to help build us a a website. Cool, thank you. I think it's going to be cool. And I wanted to ask you, the listener, what kind of content and reading material you'd like to see up on a site, because we really see the show as a tool that might help fill in and build out ritual. Uh, We've also started a Twitter page, brand new today. It's at study underscore show, study underscore show. And I'm thinking every week we can pick a hashtag. And if you're out there listening and want to add to the conversation, you can hop on Twitter and share your thoughts. So for this week, uh, as obscure as we can possibly make it, what do you guys think? Hashtag healthy brother dynamics. How does that sound? Yeah, and I think all of your listeners have to compete for one birthright. Oh, you got to fight for your right to birthright. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Hashtag you got to fight for your right to birthright. That's perfect. Any longer and we'd be asking our listeners to flee. Get your mom to trick your dad into giving you the birthright over your older brother. Dot com. Hashtag. Dot com. Ha, 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 ha.
Thank you so much, Nadav. Thank you so much, Zachary, all the way from the other side of the Mediterranean. Um, we really appreciate it. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. A quick shout out to one very special listener whose birthday was yesterday. Mrs. Greenwald, one of your sons, wants to say hello. Happy birthday, Mom. Love you a lot. Mazal tov, yom sameach. You the best. Happy birthday from all of us here. I personally am so grateful that you raised such nice boys. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host is Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Our guests today were Nadav Ullman and Zachary Greenwald. Artwork by Julia Pott. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for joining. See you next week.